Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. If you're new to our church, or if it's been a while since you've visited, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here. And if you're new, I want to really sincerely welcome you to our church. If it's been a while, we're really glad you're here. Uh, We are glad to see you again. Excuse me. I did that wrong. I can't do that every time because I'm going to be coughing a lot. Um, If you're just starting with us, or if you haven't been paying attention for the last two weeks, at the end of last year, the elders set aside some time to really seek the heart of God. Rather than just saying, we think this is important for us as a church, we really wanted to get a sense of what God is telling us as a church is important for the coming year. And so we were fasting, you know, not for a whole month straight, um, you can tell just by looking at us, we weren't doing that. But um, we were fasting, we were praying, we were seeking the heart of God. And at the end of the year, we really believe he gave us three things that he wants us to focus on as a church in the coming year. One of the things that gives me so much confidence about the leadership of our church over the last 21 years is that instead of coming up with programmatic things, What we heard from the Lord, what the other elders heard from the Lord were very spiritual things. And so on the first Sunday of the year, Pastor Jared preached about how we want this to be the year of returning or turning to the Lord with everything we've got. And I want to say to you heart to heart, if you've been stuck in a place spiritually for a really long time, a place of unforgiveness, anger, apathy, frustration, coldness, and If you've been in that place, can we just admit in all honesty, no matter what else you want to say today, you don't like being there, do you? Maybe you got used to being there, but you don't like being there. Nobody does. It's a terrible place to be when you have a sense that there is a God, but you feel cold and far from him. And if that's where you are, we want to ask you just in faith to make a declaration that this year... You will push aside all that lethargy, that apathy, that being sucked, and cry out to God with your whole heart, help me come back to you. Help me turn to you with my whole heart, no matter what failures, no matter what frustrations, what unmet needs are still lingering out there. I want to come back with everything I've got. I want to pursue you with all my heart, put you to the test, and see if you will not meet me in that place. That's one thing we really are yearning to see happen in the spiritual lives of every person at this church. Are you with me? Just nod so I know you're here. And then last Sunday, Pastor Frank preached about a vision we have that our church wouldn't just be an organization, but that it would be a family. And the truth is, some of us, um, this could be the first real, healthy, functional family you've ever been part of. Some of us grew up in a family that was really painful or difficult, and we've been longing for some place that feels like home, but the truth is not everybody has felt that here. And I'm not saying it's your fault, you're just not looking hard enough, trying hard enough. I'm saying we have a ways to go until this place, this group of people, truly feels like a family. Rather than lowering the word family to fit what we are, I want to raise what we are to fit this high, lofty name of family. And Pastor Frank reminds us it comes through acceptance, it comes through reconciliation, grace, praying together. But whatever it means to you, that's our vision for this year is that Harvest would start to feel more and more like a family. And I want to challenge you, if you've not been feeling like that, don't let your pain or your cynicism get in the way of hoping that this would be that place for you. We haven't done everything perfectly, but our heart is this. We want to do much better this year with intimacy and unity, and really feeling like a family. Are we still together? Don't you want that? I know I want that. I'm sure many of us want that. Let's hope that God would do it, rather than be cynical with arms folded that he probably won't. Well, this morning, I want to give you the third thing. The third thing that we really believe God's laid on our hearts. And I just thank God that... uh, We're not talking about a building project or a capital campaign or 
some organizational thing, but this is something from the heart that God wants for us, no matter where we meet on Sundays, no matter what else is happening for us organizationally. The, the title of the message is, I don't know if you could flash it up there, it's The Next Generation. The Next Generation. <clears throat> I apologize that that's such a low-res picture. That doesn't bother most of you, but it bothers me to no end, but I could not find a better version. I want to take the text of Psalm 78 and share with you this burden on our hearts as the elders that we would truly testify of God's greatness to the next generation. And I want to share some specifics of what that means to us. But let's look at Psalm 78. I want to look at verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. It says, My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their, their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. The primary way that God makes himself known to human beings is what? Anyone know? <laughs> Nobody wants to be the first to shout out, I guess. But the primary way that God, I hope you know this somewhere deep down, the primary way that God makes himself known to human beings is through the Bible. And we should be thankful for that because if the primary way we knew God was somehow how we felt about him deep down in our hearts, there would be over 350 million versions of God in the United States. If what we knew about God was simply what he told us, then God would be whatever we make him to be. But thankfully, he's chosen through one book, and this is right, because all of us want for, to be known on our terms as we define ourselves, not as other people have perceived us to be. And so God wrote a book, and in that book, he communicated to every human being who he is and what he's like, so that rather than making him up or conjuring him up, we are called to know him as he truly is. And so if we want to know God, the primary, the best way that we can get to know God is to turn to the Bible. And if you have a difficult relationship with the Bible, if it's hard to get going, you find reason after reason not to read it, I will tell you, not even bet you or wager you, I will tell you, you have stunted your ability to know God. You'll be frustrated because you sense there is this wonderful God, but you have no clue how to relate to him. And if you don't get into the word of God, you won't know this God very well at all. But I will also say that God has, over the millennia, used another way, a secondary way of really making himself known to human beings. Now, the first and most important essential way is the Bible, and you cannot bypass that and jump straight to the second thing. That's really important for me to establish before I move on, is if you don't go to Scripture, you won't find out about God through any other means. But if you first turn to the Bible, there is the second way that God makes himself known, and that is through the testimony of his people. It's a beautiful distinction that in the Bible, God tells us a lot of truth about himself, what he's like, who he is, what he's, where he's from, where he's headed. But it is as you hear the testimony of other people as they share the way they've related to God, that God suddenly stops being a public figure and starts to feel more like a person you can know. Here's an analogy that might help. You can read all you want about World War II in your history books. I'm going to look right at this section because I know how much this group of people loves history. How many, how many of you, AP U.S. History is like your favorite class? A-push. Anyone? 
Nothing? No, all right. Well, I love history. You could read about World War II all day long in your history books, and that's one really good way to get to know about it. But man, what a difference is made when your grandpa or your great-grandpa sits you down on the porch and tells you story after story of what it was like to storm Omaha Beach on D-Day and survive. To tell you what it sounded like when a half-track came rolling by. To tell you what it felt like to pull the trigger on a 50-millimeter machine gun and just think your teeth are going to fall out of your head. To know the despair of being a prisoner of war. You see, when someone tells you the stories, it fleshes the truth out in a way that just the truth by itself cannot. The truth is essential, it is important, it is indispensable, but stories make the truth feel real to all of us. It makes it feel human, accessible, like something I don't just want to know, but I must know, I can know. I can feel it in my heart. And so I believe that what this text in Psalm 78 is talking about is the high value God places on one generation telling the next, these are our stories of God. Now, you can hear preached on a Sunday morning the truths and principles about God, his commandments spelled out for you, but it is person to person and life on life during which you will hear a human being's story of grasping at, relating to, trusting, wrestling with, and knowing God at the deepest personal level. And when you hear those stories, they do something to our faith that is profound, that is so important that I would say you can't fully know God the way he intends to be known without both of those things, without scripture and testimony. You can know a lot about God, but he wants to be known more than just up here. He wants to be known in your bones, in your flesh, in your heart and spirit. And testimony is a huge part of the way God has always done that through human history. So, Having set the table, I want to give you two contexts in which I want to encourage our congregation to be more mindful in making an intergenerational investment, in sharing our stories of God to the next generation. The first of those settings is parents and children. I want to just acknowledge right up front that not everyone here is a parent and that for some, this very topic may be a very painful one. But I know also that there are a great many people here who are parents and don't believe they're very good ones. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm going to just raise my hand as the first volunteer. How many of you parents have had moments where you're like, you could hear yourself saying this really great parental thing in your head, and then when you open your mouth, it comes out as, and you're just like, I stink at this. How many of you have said to your spouse or to the wall in your bedroom, I am ruining my kids? They're going to need a therapist because of me. I wish I could start over. Because they've heard us yell one too many times. They've seen me punch through the walls. They've seen just how terrible I am at being a person. And I'm trying to turn them into a person. And I have so many regrets. And they have, they have memories. And I just wish I could kind of control, alt, delete, and reboot the whole system. And go, kids, forget everything. Forget everything you saw and heard and experienced. Let's start all over. Daddy loves you. I'm a good daddy. Don't you wish you could reboot the whole thing? But we can't. And so I know that it's not an easy topic for everyone, but we need hope because we're in it. There's no rewind button. There's no pause button. Life just keeps moving, and God wants to bring hope even to places where we feel like we're not doing great. Let's just pause for a minute and think about this. How much of who you are, for better or for worse, was shaped by your parents? (laughs) Just think about that for a minute. I mean, would, would therapists even have work if it weren't for parents? I seriously wonder because all the counseling I do ultimately is like, yeah, yeah, it was mom and dad. And not always good or, I mean, not always bad. Sometimes it's, if it weren't for my mom and dad, I don't know if I'd be alive today. What I'm saying is for better or for worse, so much of who we are is shaped by our parents. In fact, even though we know we have a heavenly father, 
we got to wade through the tall weeds of our earthly fathers just to get there and go, okay, I get it now. But man, my dad sure didn't help <laughs> in understanding. Maybe we can even say, yes, my dad is why I understood God as father is a good thing. But there's no denying parents have a profound effect on how you feel about life, yourself, and everybody around you. Now, let me affirm some things right off the bat. The first affirmation is that we are a church that really does take the faith of children seriously. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that I married the woman who leads the ministry. And actually, she was married to me before that. But I really am thankful that this whole congregation, and not just the parents, but so many of you who are not parents, have made an incredible investment in the faith of children at this church. I get so moved when I see people who are not parents pouring their heart and their sweat into our seeds ministry. I think how important that is for what our church has become. So I want to affirm that right away. We are a church that takes the, ki- the faith of kids very seriously, and I pray we keep doing that. I also want to affirm that many of you who are parents, you are extraordinary parents. You are doing a great job, and you are an incredibly engaged generation of parents. Some of us grew up in a home where I don't think if you asked your dad to change a diaper today, he could do it even under great duress. Some of us actually have dads who not once in their earthly existence changed a diaper. Think about that. And you've changed like 18,000 of them. We are incredibly partnered up in this generation. Dads and moms together share all the burdens. Dads with pumped milk, sometimes with a strap-on bottle. Have you seen these things from Japan? Just nursing in the middle of the night and... Where at every game, every recital, even the painful ones where you're like, oh, my kid and all their friends are so untalented. But here I am, because it's, you know, and you know what I'm saying? It's like you're at everything, every recital, every concert, every game, every performance, every, every, every. We're there. I remember looking up at the stands going, where's my parents? And they were never at any of the games. So I'm telling you, we are an extraordinarily engaged generation of parents. And It's not just the games and the recitals. Many of us are teaching the word of God at home to our kids. We're raising them to know that there is a way of God and a way of the world. And we're training them up to know the difference between those two ways of living on the earth. And I commend you for that. I have no criticism for you. That is a good thing. And I see it everywhere I look at Harvest. And I want to encourage you and affirm in you, keep doing it. That's the way we're supposed to parent. Now, this morning, what I'd like to do on that foundation is to cheer you on to add one more weapon to your arsenal. I'm so grateful that we're very engaged and participating in the lives of our kids. I'm very grateful we're teaching them the way of God and the commands of God. But listen to, and by the way, that's expressly written in Psalm 78, verses 5 through 6. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. Do you remember Deuteronomy 6? Hear, O Israel, you know, there's one God, and it says, remember the whole deal with, like, when you rise up, when you lay down, just constantly be teaching the word of God. Do you remember that? Write them on your doorposts, hang them on your... The whole point is... Israel was commanded from very early on in their history, this word I'm giving you is not just for you. It's for every generation that will follow. So you must teach your kids. And so that's what he's referring to. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. So we're doing well to teach God's principles and commands to our kids because it was expressly commanded that we should do that and it's important. But look at, if you pay attention to verse 4, one verse up from this, look what it says. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation what? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and the wonders he has done. And so the picture being painted here is, it's not enough to just tell kids what the right and wrong thing are 
And can we just admit it? Some of us parents, we never miss the opportunity to give a lecture. Every single chance that a teaching moment presents itself, we tell our kids, always be helpful, do this, do that. Pick up after yourself, clean up, say thank you, say please. We never miss the chance to lecture, and we are doing a great job with instruction. But what he's saying here is instruction alone is not enough. You must have inspiration. you got to tell the stories of what a great God we serve, who this God is. You can't just say, don't do that, do this. But to say, do you know who this God is and who, is he, who he has been to your mom, to your dad? To your grandparents? Do you know this God our family knows and serves? Do you have any idea how great this God is? Let me tell you the stories of the greatness of our God. Because we are not drill sergeants raising the next battalion of infantrymen. We are parents raising the next generation of human beings to populate the human race. And it's not enough simply to modify and control behavior. They must know this God we keep telling them is looming over their heads with power and authority. They must know that when they're sick, when they're broken, when they're hopeless and afraid, it's not just true principles and moral lessons that will guide them through, but an unshakable conviction that the God we serve is greater than everything we're afraid of. And it's not just through Bible stories, but through the stories of the generation that came before us. Here's another way of saying it. We cannot give away what we don't possess. If I were to say to you, hey, would you like a private jet? How seriously are you going to take that question? Like, why, you got two lying around you don't need the second one? It's an idle question if it's coming from me because I can't give you what I don't have. If I said, would you like a really worn out Bible? Maybe I'll give you one of those. Give you an old Mac laptop. I have one of those. But you can't give away something till you have it first. And so maybe the truth is we were, we were drummed in with moral principles all our lives. And if you shake me, a lecture will come out even if I'm sleeping. Middle of the night, shake me. Oh, yes, you have to do this. You have to do that. Like that's what fills us up is moral lessons. Principles. And maybe that's what we're full of. And so that's what we give away all the time mindlessly. But if if your children say, I don't want to hear any more principles, tell me a story about God in your life, how great he was. Tell me a time when you didn't think you could forgive, and then you forgave. Tell me a time when you were afraid to death, and he saved you. Tell me a time when something felt impossible, and God still did it. I want to hear the stories, not of Daniel in the lion's den, but of daddy in the lion's den. That's what I want to hear. Does he still live today or only way back a long time ago in Israel? Is he still alive? Does he still work? If they asked you for that story, you can't tell it to them unless there is a story, is there? There's no way to tell the story of God in my life if God's not in my life. And so the encouragement here is not to make up stories and tell them, but to say, If you really want to inspire and bless your next generation, take a time out from lecturing. I don't say let them go into lawlessness and live like wild, feral beasts. What I'm saying is don't work hard on your lecturing skills anymore. Work hard at your followership of Jesus. Put yourself in situations where God is already at work. Don't skirt around the tough stuff. Don't bypass the scary stuff. Go right to the heart of where God's at work. Are friends fighting? Is a marriage near you collapsing? Is someone sick in the hospital? Don't make up reasons why you can't make it out to the hospital. Go right into it. Dive straight to the middle of the things that scare you and say, God, will you show up? I'm terrified. One of my best friends is in the hospital with a terminal illness. I don't even know what to start to say to him. I don't want to be in that place. Two of my best friends are about to split up. I I can't handle that right now. I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the strength. I don't even know how to start. God, I don't want to get involved. And we've been there where we're saying, I know that's important. I I can't do it. I just cannot go there right now. And my encouragement to you is go there because those are the places where God shows up. Those are the places where life gets extraordinary. 
If you say, um, I hope Rogue One is really good. I'm going to pray that it's a good movie. And you go and you're like, hey, it was really good. God is working in my life. Give me a break. If that's the extent of your faith tests of God, wow, your God's going to get puny. Well, God's really working. He's, he, Rogue One was awesome. Is that really where you want to live your life? Uh, my friend had a sore throat and I gave him a halls. And then he, like, he stopped coughing for like 15 minutes. Glory, glory. I'm not trying to belittle things. What I'm saying, though, is the stuff that your heart is screaming, don't go there. Go there, and you'll have a story or two to tell. I'm thinking about going to Iraq this year. I think in Iraq, stories are manufactured on an assembly line. I'm also thinking about going to Indianapolis this year. No, No offense to anyone from Indiana, but... I feel like both places start with I, but the stories that you gather in those places are a little different. I think it's safer to go to one of those I places than another. And I think when you come back from one of those places, you will have seen something amazing that you wouldn't normally see. And so I want to encourage those who are parents, stop lecturing your kids. They know already. Start inspiring your kids. Tell them, Never mind what's right and wrong. Let me tell you about the God I know. Let me tell you about the impossible things he's brought us through. Because that's the God you kids need to know. I don't want to pit one against the other. All I'm saying is we've done a lot of the one. Let's do more of the other. Amen? Now here's the incredible promise given to us in verse 7. That if we mix instruction, and inspiration, if we mix teaching the commands of God with telling the stories of God in our own lives, the result in the next generation will be that they would what? Put their trust in God. If you're a Christian parent, that's what you want more than anything. It's not just that they would be obedient, but that in their heart of hearts, when everything is falling apart, they know who is worthy of their trust. They feel secure and safe because God has their back. If I could release four kids into the world who know that with their eyes closed, I can die in peace. That's what I want more than anything. Because I can't protect them from everything. I can't shield them from everything. I can't help them through every decision. But if they will put their own trust in God, I've done my job, haven't I? But I don't want to be lawless people, immoral people, trusting God with their crack pipe. And so it says that if you will balance instruction and inspiration, if you will tell the truth of God along with the story of God, they would not just put their trust in God, but they would not forget his deeds, and they would keep his commands. That's our goal in parenting, is that we would have kids who would know and respect and obey the commands of God, but in their heart of hearts, they also place their whole trust in God. And that it's not even clear where one starts and the other begins because it's really the truth is our trust in God and our obedience to God are very interrelated. And a person who trusts greatly obeys greatly and vice versa. Still with me? Let me give you one more context in which we can make a more intentional effort to bless the next generation that God is raising up. And that is older adults to younger adults. Seems like the favorite pastime of every generation is to criticize the one coming up after them. I'm becoming that crusty old guy who goes, oh, these next generation, these kids. Jeez. And when I say kids now, I'm talking about people in the 30s. I'm like, oh, these kids. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's so depressing. I'm, it's so depressing that I'm at that age. But, you know, it seems like every generation makes a sport of looking down our noses at the generation coming up after. Even high schoolers are like, oh, they're elementary kids these days. Jeez. They're getting phones in like fifth grade. We had to wait till eighth grade. Oh, do you know how hard it was back in the day? (laughs) But isn't that what we do? We disdain the next generation. We criticize and see them as inferior, weaker, lesser somehow, Because we remember the pain, often exaggerated, but we remember the pain and hardship of walking uphill in the snow all year, both ways to school. 
we remember the daily beatings at four o'clock, just in case, you know, like we remember all that. Some of that criticism is deserved. Can we just be honest? <laughs> Younger people, <laughs> some of that criticism is well deserved. You're weak. But let me also tell you that it was just as well-deserved when I was the younger people. And I was an idiot, and I really sucked all the hope out of my parents' generation when they looked at us. <laughs> Pull up next to us at the stoplight, and we'd be like, and we're like, yeah! I just remember seeing these midlife people at the red light going, oh, that's, that kid's going to be running the world someday. There's no hope. Some of the criticism is well-deserved. It's earned. But the truth is, what does one generation gain from being criticized by the generation that came before? Is there anything to be gained by that criticism? We act like we're trying to toughen everyone up, sharpen them. But when we wave the finger of criticism, it may point to a factual truth, but it kills the heart. It does so little to motivate real change. I'm not saying the criticisms are factually untrue. I'm saying that the way of criticism is the least effective way to raise people up. Now, if you're Asian, you've got to hear me twice because you, your, your DNA blocked the first hearing. <laughs> Did he say criticism is bad? <laughs> Get rid of that untruth. Let me tell you something. If you're raised Asian, criticism is the only child-rearing methodology you ever experience, right? Most likely. It's like, my parents really criticized me really well. In fact, I'm a little critical they could have done better at criticizing me. That, that's an Asian family's testimony. But the truth is that criticism doesn't produce the kind of change we want to produce. It may be very soothing to look down your nose at another person but it doesn't produce the kind of change you yearn to see. What if instead, one generation lifted up the next one? What if instead one generation inspired, instructed, invested in the next generation? Imagine what a difference will be made if instead of saying, here's all the ways you're not like us, You're less than us. We say, here's all the ways we dream that you will be greater than us. That you will go further than we ever did. That you will do more than we ever did. That you would achieve great things we could only dream of. And if you can just, if I can get on my hands and knees so you can get one step up to a higher vantage point, that's what I'm here for. Imagine if one generation said that to the next In fact, that's exactly the biblical picture of intergenerational ministry that Paul writes about in Titus 2. Listen to these words. I'm not going to exposit them very much. I'm just going to really read them and make one comment. Listen to these words. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. In other words, let your walk match your talk. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Why? Because the implicit understanding is younger men are watching, and it matters how the older men live. And then he directs a teaching to the older women. Similarly, by similarly, that means the same applies to men. Teach the older women to live in a way That honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. It's weird. Why why is he picking on just the women for heavy drinkers? I don't know, but let the Lord speak however he wants in this room. Okay. Instead, they should teach others what is good. Teach These older women must, listen, train the younger women to love their husbands and their children to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands, then they will not bring shame on the word of God. My aim is not to try to go back to a 1950s domestic picture. It's not a cultural statement I'm trying to emphasize here, but a biblical one, which is this. 
the right principle is that the generation before would teach the generation coming how to be a human being who follows Christ in this broken world. That's really it. And he finishes with Titus. You may be the one teaching all this, but I'm not letting you off the hook either. Here's what the spiritual leaders must hear. In the same way, we encourage the young men to live wisely, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Some of us have many valid criticisms of the way our parents portray Jesus to us, the church to us, Christianity to us. We have some very valid criticisms. My challenge to you is, are you doing a much better job of portraying a picture of a God who is winsome and loving and gracious and worthy of following? Is your own followership of Jesus inspiring your children to see a better picture of him than your parents gave to you? Or is this just another rut, generationally speaking? My parents brought me to church. I bring my kids to church, and that's all we're going to do. That's not enough, is it? It's not enough. He's saying to us that we have a responsibility, not just to our children, but even to other younger adults, to inspire, to set as an example, to instruct, so that they learn how to live for Jesus in a world that doesn't encourage living for Jesus. Raise your hand if you agree with me. This world is not built for following Jesus. Yeah? <laughs> Raise it high if you felt that, especially lady, because I've felt it. It's like, this is not a world that makes following Jesus easy. The whole system is designed against it. If you just relax, what happens is you stop. You give up. To keep going, you got to try. Now, this word of intergenerational ministry from one generation of adults to the next matters because we in the church today are in danger of losing an entire generation of people. We call them millennials. Age 18, some sociologists put a pretty big big swath on this. They say 18 to 44. To me, experientially, it's more like 18 to, if I'm being generous, 39. Let's just call it mid-30s. If you're out of high school up until about mid-30s, if you still think you're cool, this is you. I've reached that age where I now acknowledge I'm done being cool. My wife barely thinks I'm cool. Nobody else does. So that's how you know you're not a millennial, is you can't pull off, I think I'm cool still. Okay? But if you still think you can be a little cool, you're a millennial. And you are cool. I'm not saying you're fooling. I'm saying you are cool. I'm not. Okay? Millennials say 18 to mid-30s. Here's what's happening with millennials in the church. Those, who are, those of you who are millennials and sitting in this room, God bless you. Don't leave. He loves you. He wants you to stay. He wants you to lead in your generation. But here's what's happening. 25% of millennials in this country cannot think of a single positive societal contribution of Christianity. Think about that. One-fourth of this generation of millennials cannot find one good thing to say about Christianity. Millennials are leaving the church now at a rate of 1,000 per day. Did you hear that? 1,000 every day are leaving the church. They feel alienated, marginalized by a culture that doesn't seem relevant. They're never invited to sit at the table of leadership. No one ever asks them their opinion. Nobody ever mentors them or invests in them. So as a result, there's a disenchantment and alienation growing. And with the exodus of millennials, they have ushered in the sharpest decline of church attendance in all of United States history. That's what we're living in the middle of right now. This is the steepest decline in church attendance in all of the existence of the United States of America. Now, that's a good warning shot. The church needs to wake up. Would you agree? We need to wake up. There's a lot that must change. But I think one of the things we can do to stop the bleeding of millennials out of the church is simply to do what the Bible, what God himself has instructed us. Make a conscious, significant, selfless investment in a younger adult. Any younger adult. If you're a millennial, let me encourage you by telling you that the word millennial has been spoken no less than about 10,000 times 
at the elder level in this church in the last month. I, we have just been, we're almost a millennial. That we've been talking so much about what's happening with you, how to retool the church to make sure that you have a place at this table, that we make a high priority out of letting you know that God loves your generation. And the reason that losing the millennials is such a tragic loss is it's one of the most gifted, one of the most passionate generations God ever put on the earth. This generation of people can change the whole world if Jesus grabs hold. And if we lose them in the church, the loss is incalculable. What's amazing to me is when I interview millennials personally, when we do polls publicly, again and again, one common thread is they long for mentorship. I was surprised by that because being an older person, can I tell you millennials something? We older people are convinced you think we're just a bunch of old, crusty people who are uncool and have nothing to give you. The idea that you would actually want to hear from us blows us away. That you would actually want any mentoring or guidance at all is unbelievable. There is so much to give away in the generation that's before millennials. Gen Xers have accumulated an incredible amount of wisdom. They've gathered many stories of the faithfulness and power of God. And I want to encourage those who are older adults, give that away to a younger adult. Don't just hang out with them so you feel younger and cool. Hang out with them so that they feel just the goodness of God coursing through your life. Do you know what I'm saying? Find a younger adult and tell them the story of God's faithfulness in your generation. Let's not uh, put all the responsibility on older people, though. No matter how old you are, if you're an adult, there's an adult older than you, more experienced than you, wiser than you, who has known God longer than you, and you need them. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 1.5. A wise person, a man or woman, will hear and increase in learning. And a man or woman of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Meaning, it's not enough to just listen patiently when someone talks to you, but if you want wisdom, you got to go get it. you got to ask for it. you got to seek it out. Don't even look for the wisest person in the room because that, that person is probably really busy. Find like the third or fifth wisest person in the room. They're, I'm sure they're free. Okay? And just go, uh, you look wisish. Listen, and here's, here's the way to unlock. Don't say, Will you disciple me, mentor me? That sounds like, will you let me be gum stuck on your shoe, follow you around? For, it's a little pressure, you know, it's, it's kind of a lot of pressure to do that. Just say, look, you've been around a little longer than me. I've got this thing going on. Can I just get your advice or your wise counsel on something? I just got an email from someone who's actually older than me used to go to this church, was a leader, and something just happened at his new church. And that's how he led the emails. I value your wisdom. Can I just get some counsel from you on something? And it had the power of unlocking my heart because he's asking for something that he believes I have that would bring value to his life. Part of it is flattery. Let's not, be, let's not kid ourselves. It's nice. That, you, you think I'm what? All right, dude. Let me bring the full weight of my wisdom to bear on your life. Some of it is flattery, but some of it is just, I think we're built by God to give. We're created, ultimately, with the DNA of givers, and sin has distorted that. But when someone in purity asks for something, it unlocks that part that God built into us, that desire to give. It just unlocks that, and we give so generously. I want to encourage you, whatever age or generation you're part of, We never outgrow the need to hear the stories of God or to receive wisdom. We never outgrow it. I've hit that weird age where I'm giving more than I'm receiving, and that's a a sharp call to my own spirit. Don't stop learning. This summer, we're planning a trip with my parents and my brother's family, and one of the main agendas my brother and I have is to sit my parents down with a video camera and just ask them a million questions about their story. We want to fill out our genealogy, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is, when's the last time I really asked my mom and dad 
to impart to me their wisdom and to tell me the story of why in their 70s and 80s they still follow Jesus. I want to hear that because I desperately need to hear it. My soul needs that. So we're going to spend a couple thousand bucks to rent a house by the water. And the whole point is just to hear the stories of the generation that came before. Can I encourage you to make a similar intentional effort to seek wisdom and to hear the stories of God from the generation that came before? Maybe you just start with your own mom and dad and say, hey, can I buy you dinner and just ask you some questions? Tell me what it was like. I think you'd be incredibly blessed. Let me finish this way. You know, whether it's uh, medical residencies, doctors in the house, you know what I'm talking about, or maybe a fraternity hazing, it seems like the way of the world is to raise the next generation through a trial by fire. We went through hell and we're going to give you hell. That seems to be the way the flesh wants to do it. I won't spare you a single hardship I had to face because we actually, in foolishness, believe the hardship made us tough. Hardship didn't make you tough. It was simply the backdrop against which God made you tough. Apart from the sovereignty of God, your suffering meant nothing. Many have suffered worse than you have become horrific people, evil people, broken people. It was not the hardship that made you who you are. It was the faithfulness of God that made you who you are. Don't ever for a moment doubt it. I'm not saying pad every fall, cushion your kids' bedrooms, Save them from every consequence. That's not what I'm saying. But don't start thinking that it's your moral obligation to make it tougher for the next generation so that they will become good men and women. Help them. Pull them up. Why do you think I picked that picture, low res as it is? Because that's what we should be doing. Pulling the next generation up saying, get over here. I'm going to help you. I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm not going to simply raise the bar and go, no, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. Jump harder. Jump. I'm going to say, let me help you get to where you need to go. When I'm all done with my career, what I hope others will say of me is I gave a lot of people a boost up. I helped them get started. I made their lives a little bit more fruitful. One of the greatest compliments I think we could ever hear is that you use power well. That the power God gave you was not hoarded, but given away for the benefit of others. How much better if one generation could look at the next and pull up instead of push down? Train up instead of tear down? Can you imagine what a difference would be made in the world if every generation poured itself out to bless the one that comes after. Now, the world won't lead us in that, but I believe the people of Jesus should. And that's my call to us as a church. Whether it's kids, whether it's a friend, or any other adult, let's let the story of God be the greatest gift one generation gives to the next Let's pray together. I think a lot was said this morning. Um, I don't know what among the things that were said stuck with your heart. Maybe as it was being said, you felt in your heart a little jump, like that's for me. I need to hear that. Nothing that I said this morning was spoken in a spirit of rebuke or complaint or criticism. Please know that. I'm hearing these words same as you. I want to help the next generation. So whatever it is that you sense the Lord wants to say to you, listen for a moment and and receive it. Let him say it to you. And then take a minute to respond. And then I'll pray for us and then we'll sing some more songs. Let me pray for us. God, not all, but some, maybe even many of us, the generation that came before in their imperfection left some deep scars, took some things from us we can't reclaim. And we still carry the scars and we still carry the weight of that everywhere we go. 
God, help us not to throw that weight on the shoulders of the next generation. We are broken, but help us be builders of the next generation. In our pain, help us not to condemn those who come after to inherit from us the weight of sin and brokenness, but instead to receive an inheritance of the praiseworthy deeds, the power and the mighty acts and wonders of our God. We admit that we cannot give away what we don't have, and so we pray that you would constantly pull at our own hearts to live lives at the ragged edge of this faith, of this kingdom. To stop chasing safety and comfort and go to the places where you're very much alive and working. Help us to go to the places where you're writing stories worth telling about who you are. Help us to be men and women of faith and courage, selflessness, so that our whole lives would be spent and used as a blessing for those that come after us. We pray that you would give us this generous and selfless spirit, for it only comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.